great to be here with you. It's a real privilege to be here. I just want to jump straight in, if that's right. I'm going to be talking about the mercy of God, which is my absolutely most favorite subject in the world to talk about. And most of us who are sitting here are going to think, well, I know loads about the mercy of God. It's something I'm familiar with. But I'm just trusting that God is going to really bring revelation to us again tonight about his merciful character for us. If you're anything like me, I know how easy it is to forget that God's mercies are new for me every day and that the reason they're new for me every day is because I need them every single day. So I just want to start by telling you about a friend of mine um, who six years ago was killed in a car accident. So my friend Jo was about 34 years years of age. She worked for a church. She loved Jesus She was single, she was cycling to work at her church one morning when she was hit by a lorry and basically the driver of the truck was arrested for causing death by dangerous driving. He had rear view mirrors as you'd expect, he had a camera in his truck that should have shown him when he was reversing that my friend was behind him. And also, as he was reversing, there were other cars there who were, people were honking their horns, they were yelling out the window, trying to stop him from reversing and hitting my friend. But he hadn't looked properly, and he didn't hear the people hooting their horns and yelling at him. And so he reversed over my friend Joe, and he didn't realise until it was too late. Now, as I said, he was found guilty in court of causing death by dangerous driving. And when he was found guilty, the judge said to him, I need to warn you that when we come back for sentencing, you are facing a custodial sentence. You are going to be going to prison. But after he said this, my friend Joe's parents decided that they would write to the judge and explain to the judge that they're Christians. And they said to the judge, please, can you show mercy to the driver We don't see any benefit in him going to prison. It won't bring our daughter back. So we're asking you to show mercy. Now, because of that letter that my friend's parents wrote to the judge, the judge decided he would have mercy. He didn't send the guy to prison after all. The driver did lose his driving license. There were consequences for what had happened, but he wasn't sent to prison. He was shown mercy. And local and national newspapers at the time Um, covered this story. So the Daily Mail had the headline, Death Driver Shown Mercy. And the reason it made national headlines is because this kind of mercy is so rare in our society. Even for us as Christians, we hear a story like this, and I think if we're truly honest, we wonder if we would have done the same thing as my friend's parents. I know that I do. I'm not sure that I would have done what my friend's parents done. In the middle of their grief and their heartbreak and their heartache about this only daughter that they had who had died in such a young age, I'm not sure that I'd have been writing to a judge asking him to show mercy. And the thing that's even more amazing is that the judge said to the driver, Joe's parents have recognised how this has affected you. In the middle of their grief, they recognised how the driver had been affected by what he had done. And I'm pretty sure that I wouldn't have reacted the same way. Would you? If you've just lost someone so precious to you, I don't think it would even cross my mind to care about how the driver had been affected 
by what had happened. But my friend's parents were able to do it because their understanding of the mercy of God was so deep and so rich and so precious to them that they were able to extend that same mercy even to the guy who took their daughter from them. I think the word mercy is not really commonly used today. Um, I was talking to a non-Christian friend um, about being here tonight, and I was saying to her, I'm talking on the mercy of God, and she said, mercy is such a Christian word. She said it doesn't really mean much to um, most people. She's like, what does it actually mean anyway? I was just really struck by that conversation. I thought, isn't that sad? That the word mercy just isn't really a feature of our society. Imagine how different our society would be. Imagine how different it would look if the word mercy was not only frequently on our lips, but was frequently in our hearts as well. Imagine what politics in this country would look like. Imagine how we'd respond to the tweets of Donald Trump if we were thinking mercifully at all times. Imagine what our newspaper headlines would look like and what celebrity culture would look like. You know, um, a few weeks ago I read a tweet that said that Kevin Spacey, the actor Kevin Spacey, had committed suicide. It wasn't true, but for the few minutes while I tried to find out if it was true, I felt so sad that there's no one around him at the minute saying there's still mercy available to you. Even with what he's done, there's still mercy available What would business look like? What would education look like? What would healthcare and prisons and our neighborhoods look like if mercy was the defining characteristic of them? Even in church life, even in our youth groups, sometimes mercy towards one another can be really lacking. I know that it's not always the first thing in my heart when I'm dealing with people around me. You know, in New Frontiers, we've had a heavy focus for many years on the grace of God which is absolutely amazing, and I'm sure it has brought freedom to thousands of people who struggled with legalism. But I don't think we talk about mercy as often as we should, at least not in my experience. I'd say that it should be one of the main things that characterize and defines us as the people of God. It should be one of the main things that sets us apart from the world around us. Because, you know, Jesus said in Luke 6, 36, be merciful just as your father is merciful. We're called to be merciful just as our Father is merciful. And the starting place for that has got to be an understanding of God's amazing and outrageous mercy towards us. See, the mercy of God, it's it's where we get let off the hook. It's where the punishment we deserve has been diverted away from us onto Jesus. It's when we actually deserve to be judged for what we've done, what we've failed to do what we've thought for our attitudes, but instead we're met with the kindness and the compassion and the forgiveness of God. The mercy of God is utterly outrageous. It's really, really radical. And there's a danger, as Ben said in the worship, that we can just become so familiar with it that it doesn't impact us anymore, that it doesn't hit us anymore. The Bible says that God does not treat us as our sins deserve. But it's more than that. It's not just about getting let off the hook. It's, it's about loving kindness in action. The mercy of God is an active thing. It's not a passive thing. It's about God actively doing good to us. Actively doing good and being kind to those who have no right to expect any kindness whatsoever. 
The guy who killed my friend, he had no right to expect any mercy, any leniency, any kindness whatsoever. And yet, he was shown it. He didn't deserve it. That's what mercy is about. You know, in that same passage in Luke 6, it says that God is kind. Who is he kind to? It says, God is kind to the ungrateful and wicked. I don't know about you, that's not usually the type of people I'm kind to. I'm normally kind to people who are kind to me. You know, you treat me with respect, I'll treat you with respect. I saw this thing on Facebook the other day that said, don't cross an ocean for someone who wouldn't cross a puddle for you. And I thought, that sounds good and wise and sensible. It's completely unbiblical. It's completely unbiblical. Cross an ocean for someone who wouldn't cross a puddle for you. That's what God's done for us, isn't it? The one dictionary definition of mercy is the disposition to be compassionate. That means the tendency or the natural inclination or the default setting to be compassionate. I don't know about you, but so often my natural inclination is not to be compassionate. I find it comes really naturally to me to judge other people. I find it comes naturally to me to want to convict other people of their sins. I quite like a bit of that if I can get away with it. Um, it comes naturally to me to criticize other people, to compare myself to other people. Sometimes to make myself look good, sometimes it doesn't leave me looking so good. But, like I said, the reason my friend's parents were able to show mercy to the man who killed their daughter was because they had cultivated this natural disposition to be compassionate so that when it really counted, when it really mattered, when it was at the most painful and hardest time to do it, they were still able to do it because they'd made it their tendency. They'd made it their natural inclination to get to know the God who is defined by this characteristic. When I first became a Christian, I had this idea in my head that the God of the Old Testament was very different to Jesus. I thought the God of the Old Testament was full of rules and regulations and only cared about a select group of people. And then Jesus came along and was compassionate and kind and almost like the fluffier version of God, if you like. And Jesus then spent his time with the people who didn't deserve to hang out with him. Jesus was the one who um, spent his time with those no one else deemed worthy of their time or their respect, or their value. Of course, I had a massive misunderstanding of God and his heart for people, because, you know, we all know, the Bible says that Jesus is the image of the invisible God, that he's the exact representation of God, and that if we've seen and heard Jesus, we've seen and heard the Father. So whatever we see in Jesus is what the Father is like too, and the concerns of Jesus are the concerns of the Father. So when we see Jesus spending time with lepers, and tax collectors and prostitutes, we see the very heart of God, the very mercy of God for those that society would despise and would shun and push away. And if we just try and think about who is that in our society? You know, at the minute, and actually for many years, it's, maybe it's people on benefits. Maybe it's people from other nations who want to come and make a life for themselves in this country. Maybe it's celebrities who've done wrong and we show no mercy to them. Maybe it's politicians who behind the scenes are doing things they shouldn't be doing, and our response so often, I saw this in a tweet the other day about Carillion, you know, the business, the building company that's just collapsed, and I saw a tweet where it said, we feel really sorry for the workers, but we have no mercy for the bosses at the top. I thought, that is not God's way. God's way is he has mercy for 
the abused and actually for the abuser. He has mercy for the violent. He has mercy for the proud. He has mercy for the people who we might think, well, they're far worse than I have ever been. Because, you know, actually that isn't true anyway. And we can think of God in so many ways. We can think of God as powerful and holy and sovereign. And obviously these are all true and they're great ways to think about God. But I find it really fascinating that when Moses asked God to show him his glory, what did God reveal to Moses in that moment? Because if someone said to me, show me your glory, I think I'd want to reel off a list of my achievements. I might want to tell you about what qualifications I've got or how I've done this well in my job or career or what have you. I think if I said to God, show me your glory, I might expect him to tell me something about his greatness. Maybe I expect him to point to the mountains and the oceans and the forests and say, here's my glory. Look at everything I've created. Look at what I've done. I might expect him to show me his strength or his power and his might. Look at how I can cause the waves to come up or go down. I might expect him to show me his holiness and his purity and his righteousness and how he's so other from me. I might expect him to show me his wisdom or his knowledge or his greatness. But actually, it says in Exodus 34, when Moses said, God, I want to see your glory, it says, the Lord descended in the cloud and stood with him there and proclaimed the name of the Lord. The Lord passed before him and proclaimed, the Lord, the Lord a God merciful and gracious, slow to anger and abounding in steadfast love and faithfulness. So when God was revealing himself to Moses, when, when Moses was getting about as close to God as it was possible to get before Jesus came, God's primary way of describing himself, God's primary way of identifying himself was as a God merciful and gracious, slow to anger, abounding in steadfast love and faithfulness. And that's why my friend's parents were able to show mercy, because they'd seen the glory of this amazing God that we worship, this God that we love. They'd seen the one who was full of compassion and grace and mercy, and they knew what it was to experience the mercy of God for themselves. So they were able to pour it out, even to the man who took their daughter's life. And this is how we show the mercy of God to other people. This is how we show the mercy of God to those in our youth groups and our churches and our workplaces, our communities and our neighborhoods, by first and foremost knowing the mercy of God for ourselves. If we're going to make a difference to those around us, if we are going to have a long-lasting and profound impact on those around us, those under our care, but even those we just encounter day by day, it always has to start with a revelation of who God is, of what he is like and how he treats me. I don't know about you, but I find it really easy to thank God for the mercy that he showed me when he saved me. I do. I, I find it much harder, if I'm honest with you, to remember that he's merciful to me now and that he's been merciful to me every minute of every day since he saved me. You know, I can look back at myself. I was 15 when I became a Christian and I was a pretty messed up teenager. I was one of those people who was, was just messy I was one of the messy ones in the youth group. And I can look back at myself as this 15-year-old who got saved out of a non-Christian family. And I find it really easy to see and be thankful for God's mercy to that damaged and hurting teenager. 
I look back now and I think, you know what, I wasn't even seeking God when he found me. I wasn't. I was not jumping up and down going, pick me, Jesus, pick me. I was pretty disinterested in God. I wasn't searching for him. I didn't know that I really needed him. I didn't know that I had this longing for him. In fact, I was one of those people, I was a pretty zealous atheist, but I was one of those atheists who's really angry with the God that I don't believe in. You know the kind? Yeah. He pursued me. He chased after me. He grabbed hold of me and he rescued me and he adopted me. His beautiful, wonderful mercy sought me out, took hold of me and transformed me. It's absolutely incredible. And yet I find it so easy to forget that in Lamentations it says, the steadfast love of the Lord never ceases. His mercies never come to an end. They are new every morning. I think one of the things about being in leadership, um, whether it's youth leadership or any sort of leadership in the church, is that we can hold ourselves to such high standards. And obviously there's a sense in which that's good and that's right, and we need to hold ourselves to high standards. We need to be honouring God with our lives. But I don't know about you, but I hold myself to such high standards I can't live up to them. I know that I can't live up to them. When I was a youth leader, I was pretty much obsessed with the fact that I wasn't reading my Bible enough, that um, I wasn't praying as much as I should, that I still struggle with some of the same sinful attitudes and behaviors that I was struggling with 10 years ago. I might have made progress, but some of them I don't feel entirely free from, if I'm honest with you. And sometimes I have doubts that I think, how can I still have doubts? I've been a Christian for 25 years now. Surely there's a point you reach where you get over this. Or situations that happen in church life. This happens to me all the time at the minute, where something happens in church life, and I think, I have no idea what to do. When does the wisdom kick in? When, when do we get to the point where we get all the answers and we know exactly what we're going to do at any point? It hasn't happened to me yet. I'm imagining there's probably not a person in this room who would say, no, no, I'm all sorted now. Thank you very much. And I think if I don't fix my eyes on Jesus and his mercy for me that is as strong and active and vibrant today as it was the day that he saved me, then instead what I tend to fix my eyes on is how I'm not good enough and I'm not measuring up and I'm not living up to my own standards, let alone anything God may call me to or others may expect of me. And if I'm not careful, and if we're not careful, we can put so much pressure on ourselves that we spend more time dwelling on how we're failing and our weaknesses and our struggles and our flaws than we do dwelling on this beautiful mercy of God that not only rescued us from death and from darkness and from destruction, but rescues us again and again and again. Every single day I feel like I'm rescued by God in one way or another. His mercies are new for me every day because I need them. I need them to rescue me every day. You know that verse in um, Psalm 23, it says, Surely goodness and mercy shall follow me all the days of my life. I only noticed relatively recently the word follow in that verse. Um, Maybe you guys all saw it the first time you read it. I'm a bit slow, so I, I hadn't seen it. And I'm so used to thinking about God's mercy leading me and initiating you know, my repentance and my salvation and, and actually being the thing that wooed me into the kingdom of God that I hadn't noticed actually for most of my Christian life that this verse says that the mercy of God follows me. 
And actually, that has been my experience through the whole of my Christian life, that the mercy of God has followed me wherever I've gone. Sometimes I've gone through seasons of feeling very distracted from God, not particularly getting involved in anything that I shouldn't be, but just preoccupied with other things, just distracted from him. And I know that when that's happened to me, his mercy has followed me, and it's gently drawn me back. God is so gentle with us. He's so tender with us. And he pulls us with these cords of loving kindness that draw us back. And I also know that in my Christian life, I've gone through seasons of outright rebellion to God. I've gone through seasons of willful sin where I have wanted God to leave me alone and I've wanted to go off and do my own thing. And I remember when I was at university begging God to just let go of me because I knew I couldn't escape from him and it was driving me nuts I just wanted to be free to do the things that I wanted to do without having this constant sense that God was after me and on my case. And yet, even there, even when I wanted to escape from God, his mercy followed me and wouldn't let me go. And I've gone through seasons um, as a Christian of real deep depression and actually doubt that everything I've known, whether it's true or not, and even then, God's mercy has followed me into some really dark places and drawn me back. Every path I've taken, God's goodness and mercy have followed me. When I've wandered far from him, when I've put myself in some dangerous and some really risky situations, even there, God's compassion has swept in and rescued me from my own foolishness often. And maybe you're sitting here and you're thinking things you've done or You know, you're supposed to be a leader and maybe you feel like you're not living up. Maybe you're actually in a place right now where you are willfully sinning and maybe no one knows about it. And you might say, Nat, you don't know what I've done. You can stand up there and talk about Jesus and the mercy of God all you like, but you don't know how far I've walked and you don't know about the mistakes I've made. But do you know what? I don't need to know what you've done because I know who God is. I know that he is a merciful and gracious God who is slow to anger and he never changes he's the same yesterday today and forever so whatever you've done whatever I've done his mercy is available to us we can't escape from it and thank God for that but the purpose of God's mercy isn't just to save and rescue us as wonderful as that is but it's also to build us into oaks of righteousness for the display of his splendor. You know, God's vision for you is greater than your vision for you. It is. God has higher aspirations for you than you have for yourself. God has a greater vision for those in your youth group than you have for them. The purpose of God's mercy isn't just to save and rescue us. It's to take our lives and let us have an impact on others, on the world around us. Jesus demonstrated the tremendous mercy of God in everything he did and everything he said, and he calls his followers to do the same. We get this amazing privilege of being mercy bringers, of being those who carry the very mercy of creator God into a society and a culture that doesn't know mercy. It's a foreign concept in our culture. Much less... Is it a common experience in our culture? But we get to be those who are different in our attitude and in our behavior towards those in society that most people would write off or would say have no value or don't contribute anything of worth or don't deserve our help. 
A couple of years ago, I was reading this well-known verse in Micah 6, verse 8, that says this, What does the Lord require of you? To act justly and to love mercy and to walk humbly with your God. And as I was reading it, I was thinking, that's weird. Why does God tell his people to love mercy? Like, isn't it strange? Because of all people, we should be the people who most love the mercy of God. Right? If I did a show of hands, which of you in the room loves the mercy of God? I'm sure we'd pretty much all put our hands up. So why does God have to say this is something he requires of us? Why are we, why are we told we're to love mercy? I think if we're honest with ourselves, it's usually the case that we find it very easy to love the mercy of God when it's shown to us and somewhat less easy to love the mercy of God when it's shown to other people, especially people who irritate us or frustrate us or who have hurt us. And sometimes we think, well, you don't know what that person did to me. They don't deserve my mercy. No, they don't. You know, I've got quite a few people in my life who don't deserve my mercy. But actually, I worship this God who has shown me more mercy than I can even fathom. And I don't deserve a a single bit of it from him, and yet he's done it for me. So when God tells us to love mercy, when he tells his own people to love mercy, maybe it's because he knows we have a tendency to not love it when it's shown to everyone. There are several examples of people in the Bible who didn't love the mercy of God when it was shown to others. Jonah is probably the classic example. You know, Jonah runs away from God because he doesn't want to deliver a message that God has asked him to take to Nineveh. And he runs away from God and he gets caught up in this big fish and even there God shows him mercy. God could have just killed him right there and found someone else to do it. But God shows him this amazing mercy And in the end, Jonah gets on and does as he's told, and he goes to Nineveh, and he brings this message, and the people of Nineveh repent. And Jonah's angry with God and says, I knew you'd do this because I knew you were merciful. Jonah's just been shown this incredible mercy from God, and yet he's angry with God at the mercy that he's shown to other people. You know, in the story of the prodigal son, the older brother is not best pleased with how his father welcomes back his younger brother. Instead of being like, oh, wow, my brother's back and restored. Let me come celebrate with you. He's like, what are you doing? Why are you treating him like that? He did this, he did that. Don't you remember? Actually, that's what the Pharisees did to Jesus as well, didn't they? They were like, don't you know, you don't know who you're talking to because if you knew, you wouldn't treat them like that. Jesus knew exactly who he was talking to. He knew exactly who he was talking to. And even the disciples, you know, there's a couple of them that Jesus nicknamed the Sons of Thunder. Imagine that. I often wonder if that nickname's going to stand for all eternity. Maybe not. I don't know. But these sons of thunder, these disciples who, when people didn't respond to Jesus in the way they wanted, said, should we call down fire from heaven? I, be, I feel like that about people sometimes. Come on, let's just smite them a bit, God. Then, then, they'll, then they'll buck up their ideas. Maybe I'm the only one. I don't know. I think it's so easy to slip into really loving the mercy that's been shown to me but being a bit irritated by the mercy that God shows to other people. When I see someone else get an opportunity that I might have wanted, someone else get put onto a team or get invited to a meeting that I might have wanted to go to, I find it really easy to kind of get irritated at the mercy that God is showing to someone else. I think you'd... I wonder if the lead elder knows that they did that. Maybe I should slip it into conversation, you know? 
I'm just sharing my, you know, this is my public confession to you all. You can all pray for me later. I assume I'm not alone. <laughs> I think so often we look at people's behaviour and judge on that basis whether or not they deserve mercy from us. But we, that's completely forgetting that that's never how God looks at us. We can so easily go, oh, you've done this or you've done that, so I'm not going to give you this opportunity or I'm not going to have as much faith for you or I'm getting a bit, I had a heart for you and now I've lost it because you did this or you did that. But actually, do you know what? As Christians, we are not called to respond to people's behavior. We're called to respond to the behavior of Jesus. He's the only one whose behavior we are supposed to react and respond to. God's mercy has very, very little to do with the recipient and everything to do with the giver. How he treats you and me is based on who he is, not on what we've done. And we're called to do that too. We're called to treat people based on who Jesus is and who we are in him, not on how they act or how they respond to us. I think there are a couple of stories in the Bible. We won't turn to them because of time, but I'll just summarize them. Um, that I think particularly helped demonstrate this point. And one of them is in 2 Samuel 9, where we read that King David asked if there was anyone left in the house of Saul to whom he could show God's kindness. When you read that passage, notice he said, who can I show God's kindness to? He, lo- he was looking, he was actively looking for someone, and he found Mephibosheth. And Mephibosheth, Jonathan's son. And we read that Mephibosheth was lame in both feet, And it tells us um, a few chapters earlier in 2 Samuel 4 that Mephibosheth became lame in both feet in an accident when he was five years old. We read that his nurse picked him up to flee with him. But the Bible says that as she hurried to leave, he fell and became disabled. Now, I don't know about you, but if someone like Mephibosheth came to me and said, I'm in dire need, will you help me? I would think, yeah, you deserve my mercy. You do. You're in need through no fault of your own. You are a victim of circumstances beyond your control. And actually, Mephibosheth was really grateful and really humble for the help that David offered him. But then there's another story in the Bible of the prodigal son in Luke 15, where we read about he goes off and he squanders his father's wealth in wild living and only returns out of desperation when he's starving to death and has no hope of surviving if he doesn't go back. I don't know about you, but I find it a lot harder to naturally feel mercy towards the prodigal son. You know, the older brother tells us that he spent his money on prostitutes. So if someone comes to me and says, help me, I'm in desperate need. Please, can you help me? I've got nothing. I need some food. And I go, wow, what happened to you? And they go, oh, I spent all my money on prostitutes. The response in my heart is not a naturally merciful one, if I'm honest with you. Because his own bad decisions got him there. He threw himself into sin without caring who it hurt, without caring who it affected, And then he gets desperate and he decides to come back. If it was me, I'd want to point out to him that, well, you got yourself into this mess. I'd want to criticize him for his stupid choices. And even if I was prepared to forgive him, I would certainly want him to feel bad about what he'd done. I would want him to, you know, feel guilty and to recognize the weight of what he'd done. But actually, thank God that he's not like me. Because while Mephibosheth and the prodigal son stand in stark contrast to one another, the father figure in both those stories responds in exactly the same way. King David in the story of Mephibosheth and the father in the story of the prodigal son, they both respond with immediate and undeserved mercy. And we all know people who keep making bad decisions, don't we? 
I mean, I've been one of those people. We've got people in our youth groups, we've got people in our churches, people who come to our food banks or our night shelters or debt advice centres or soup kitchens or whatever we're doing in church life. And we know people who've caused the mess that they've landed in. But God's mercy doesn't treat us as our sins deserve. God's mercy has never said to me, you got yourself in that mess. You know, our society says, well, you made your bed, so you lie in it. Thank God he never says that to us. Thank God that his attitude is not that. You know, I was one of those people, I was one of those messy teenagers who was full of the zeal, you know, such zeal for God one minute and then dramatically backsliding the next. I decided to do an impact year back then called Frontier Year Project and I got kicked off it five months in. So there's me thinking, here, God, you can have me, you can have my heart, and then... I felt like basically God went, no thanks, you're all right. Um, That isn't actually what happened, obviously, just to say. But, you know, I was one of those really messy people. And if you'd asked my youth leaders back then, there were about 60 teenagers in my youth when I was was a teenager. And if you'd said, line them up in order of those who you think are going to go on to do great exploits for God, those who are going to get to write books about the poor and who are going to get to speak to groups of people about the mercy of God, I am pretty sure that I would have been quite far down the bottom of the pile of people that they would have chosen. And in fact, if you don't believe me, you think maybe I'm being hard on myself, I asked my former youth leaders to email me and tell me, a couple of weeks ago I said that I was coming to do this, and I said, can you describe me as a teenager? I'm going to read this to you. And they said, it started with, you were a right screwed up mess. <laughs> Kidding. Um, What we can remember of you, Nat, was the overwhelming feeling of low self-worth you carried around with you. We kept encouraging you, but you just couldn't accept it. It was a real battle. You had bouts of withdrawal, depression, lack of self-confidence, self-harming. You had the classic abandonment versus acceptance battle going on in your heart. It's amazing to see what God has done. You know, it is because it's the mercy of God. And back then, I was a right pain to my youth leaders, and they invested hours in me. They did. They invested a lot of time in me. And you know, at the end of time, my time in the youth, how my relationship with them back then ended was that um, I swore at them down the phone. I told them where to stick it, basically, in less pleasant words. And then I ran off to uni and I backslid for six years. So actually, all that time they invested in me looked like it had been wasted. All that time they plowed into me looked like it had come to nothing. I didn't look like a great candidate for God to do much in me, let alone through me. But actually, this wonderful God that we love, the Bible tells us he delights to show mercy. That he absolutely delights. It says in Micah 7, verse 18, he delights to show mercy. And you know, the very people in your youth group right now who are most irritating you, who you are most frustrated with, the ones who never follow your advice, the ones who are disruptive to others in your youth group, the ones who are a bad influence, and maybe you can't see anything worth investing in, and you're certainly not going to pick them for any opportunities. Do you know what? God has incredible mercy for them because God sees where they're going to be in 10 years or 20 years. He sees the amazing work he's going to do in their heart and what he's going to draw out of them in a way that we can't. He has a vision for them that is so much beyond what we can imagine, but we need to get his heart for those people around us. Not just in our youth groups, but in our neighborhoods, in our workplaces. Because we get the amazing privilege of loving the people God has put in our path right now. Of recognizing the astonishing mercy that God has for them right now. And loving mercy can be hard 
because people do keep making the same bad decisions. People do keep making mistakes. But we're called to love it. We're called to love the mercy of God. And as those who are leading the next generation, it's all the more important that we get the mercy of God for ourselves and we get that this call on our lives, that we're to be merciful just as our Father is merciful. You know, the big hitting kind of prophetic people in our movement in New Frontiers um, at the moment are talking about how a season worse than we've seen as a nation is coming. They're talking, there's, there's prophetic words about um, this being, having been a season like Joseph, where we should be storing up for worse that's to come. This being the year of storing away in the barns because our society is going to fall into more collapse than it did when the global financial crash hit in 2008. And if our society is going to get worse, if public life is going to get messier, if celebrity culture is going to get messier and worse, then actually we are the ones who right now need to be getting ourselves so acquainted with the mercy of God for us and helping our youth get so acquainted with the mercy of God for them that they can take it out to those around them. Because God's heart for your youth group is to transform it into a vehicle of mercy for a broken and a hurting world.